a new episode of Passion for Technology, the podcast from EPD Electronic. Great to have you with us. Welcome to the Passion for Technology podcast. Those of us of a certain age might still remember Kit, the car from the TV series Knight Rider, which was equipped with artificial intelligence. It could speak. It might have been science fiction back in the 1980s, but now it seems to be turning into reality. Not many people realize that a modern car now contains an average of 960 semiconductors. How far are we from Kit becoming real, and what are the most relevant demands when it comes to the automotive industry now? That's what we'll be discussing with our guest today, Robert Bilby, Senior Director, System Architecture and Product Planning at Micron. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mustafa. It's an absolute pleasure to be here today. So, Robert, can your car talk to you like Kit did? Yeah. If the industry wants the car to talk back to me, absolutely. I'm not sure that's the desired state, but I have enough people that tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing. But maybe I want my car to do that as well. But it's not off the table. How far have we come in computerizing cars in general? It's over the top. In fact, from a memory standpoint, one of the leading drivers of memory technology is actually automotive. So from a performance, power, safety, reliability, quality standpoint, the industry is now recognizing that automotive is the driver of memory technologies. We have historically looked at the automobile as a mechanical platform. And it is quickly turning into an electrical platform. And it's been decades behind where it should be, but we're there today now. These days, a major goal is fully autonomous driving. How soon can we hope to be chauffeured around by a self-driving car? So today you can sign up for services with Cruz in San Francisco. They're trying to engage customers where they have self-driving cars. And you can use them to get from point A to point B. In general, level five, which is where you will never see a steering wheel in the car, that's a very aggressive level. And I think a lot of companies are realizing that it's more complex than they realize. But level three, level four, especially level three, I think you're seeing a lot of deployment today and tomorrow in that space where... We have a lot of features that help the driver in navigating the vehicle down the road without getting in an accident, but it's not at the point where the technology is still taking over control of the car. As far as semiconductor technology is concerned, what requirements must be met to achieve fully autonomous driving? So there's some real basics where at some point, Things like AEC Q100 and uh, TS16949, ISO 26262, a lot of great buzzwords that talk about the quality of the vehicle or the quality of the technology that's going to go into the vehicle. Because obviously, at some point, safety of the driver and the passengers are of the utmost And so the industry is starting to gravitate towards some very stringent requirements to ensure that the technology that's being put in the vehicle is of the utmost quality and reliability. Staying in that vein, with autonomous driving in particular, semiconductors play a major safety-critical role. After all, a malfunction could cause bodily harm and even cost lives. 
How does the semiconductor industry, in this case Micron, make sure that nothing goes wrong with the chips? So great question. And this really touches on a topic of safety. And safety is really described by how is the product designed? And so from the get-go, Micron, which is taking a huge leadership position in the industry, and we've been in this industry for 30 years with 40% share, et cetera, which is unheard of. First piece is designing a part that is compliant with safety standards. So you're using best-in-class design methodology to ensure that a part that's going to go into an automobile is going to be consistent with some of the stringent safety requirements. The second piece is, so we call that systematic fault coverage, which says that we've designed the part in a way that is consistent with best in class. And then we have what we call random fault coverage, where we provide flags where in the 10,000, 20,000 hours that the car is on the road, there is something that may fail. And the fit rate is off the charts. But when it does happen, what we're providing is the ability for the designer to recognize when a problem has occurred or failure has occurred and either ignore that failure because it's one pixel that's failed on a screen or it's a failure that requires the customer to basically take the car and you know move it off to the side of the road so it's crippled but can be a solution that's solved down the line so it's a huge effort and it's a huge initiative and something that we've been focused on for literally the last two years plus with significant investments. Rob, what are particular demands for semiconductor solutions for the automotive sector? I mean, what about long-term availability, for instance? Modern cars can last for 20 years. How are semiconductor manufacturers responding to this? You know, we're going through an interesting period where we're almost through our teenage years or something where We have a broad spectrum of customers that at some point are looking for yesterday's technologies to still be available today. And as a company, we're supporting that, as well as customers that are looking for a thousand tops per watt and level five autonomous driving. And this is driving the demand for the bleeding edge technology. And we're supporting that as well. It's a very complex path for a memory supplier to support, but we're committed to do this. And it's really supporting a wide range of requirements from give me a mature product that's available today and tomorrow and the next day, as well as give me bleeding edge technology and then ensure that you support it for 10 years from now. And we see both sides of the spectrum and we're supporting both sides. There's a lot of attention, a lot of engineering skill, a lot of mental capacity being devoted to this particular domain, cars. Are there other fields of application for these solutions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, Micron's commitment to automotive ultimately benefits a wide range of other markets. So the fact that we are designing product that is compliant with highest safety standards and other such requirements benefits all the market as a whole. So we end up with a higher quality product, a higher reliability product, a product that can address safety concerns and 
at some point, we service a broad spectrum of markets. So whether it's a cell phone or a rocket that's sent into space, every market that we support benefits from the investments that we make in automotive. 5G networks are mentioned frequently in the context of autonomous driving. How important is connectivity for current and future vehicles? So one of the biggest transformations that's happening in vehicles is first and foremost, the concept of over-the-air update. So the fact that with your PC today, you're expecting that you can download the latest, greatest Windows 10, 11 update, and it's kind of transparent in the background. You talk about 960 semiconductors. When we talk about the memory footprint, we're talking about 100 million lines of code going to 300 million lines of code. And so the ability to get all of that right is probably little to none. And so there's a need to continuously update the memory footprint. And so 5G will play a big role in that in the sense that there's a lot of memory that needs to be updated. You'll pull your car in your garage and you'll update it there. As well as 5G is also a big technology boost for vehicle-to-vehicle communications. And the 3GPP standard looks at how to support vehicle-to-vehicle communication. And so at some point, if I can understand what the intent of a vehicle is, where it's going to go through a red light or there's a pedestrian that's going to step into the sidewalk, all of the ability for vehicles to talk to each other provides what I've referred to as Superman, where he has X-ray vision and can see beyond what other people see because there's an ability to predict what the landscape looks like. But in reality, 5G is going to be limited to a set of locations, etc. And so vehicles need to operate independent of 5G, but when it's available, It's going to provide an amazing overlay in terms of providing increased safety, performance, as well as updates. Rob, what type of semiconductors are we talking about? What types of chips are there for cars and what purposes do they serve in the cars? The automobile is really being viewed as the leading platform for at least memory definition But I think in general, if we look at, you know, the total tops, et cetera, terabyte operations per second or terabit operations per second, really, the uh, and it's kind of an overused cliche, but it's data center on wheels. And so we're dealing with literally the highest compute performance that's required for a given platform. And it needs to operate in environments that are incredibly robust from a thermal standpoint, vibration standpoint, safety, security, etc. And so in general, what we're seeing is that today, automotive is really driving a lot of the industry, both from a semiconductor standpoint, memory standpoint, because the performance is off the chart, safety, security. It's a really challenging market to support. But with that, when we're looking at 100 million cars manufactured a year, there's enough tailwind there to drive that, along with the fact that all these semiconductors are going to provide enhanced user experience as well as an enhanced safety experience as far as driving down the road is concerned. Chips are not only used for driving. I mean, infotainment 
is also becoming an increasingly important part and motivator for many car buyers. What trends do you see there? It's really what the user is looking for is really the same experience that they have in the home as they do in the car. And so they're expecting instant response, snappy response, connectivity with all the applications that they are familiar with and comfortable with that they have on their iPhone. And and at some point, as we start to look at mobility as a service, I'm going to commission a car that's going to drive me from point A to point B. And the minute I jump in that car, I want that car to have the right lighting, acoustics that I like. And so in general, the whole in-vehicle experience is becoming one of the key decision factors that are driving a customer's decision to buy one car over another car. And this cannot be overstated. And in fact, the OEMs themselves are realizing that at some point they can capture user behavior as to what purchases they're making, what their interests are, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's almost a dynamic battle between an Android and an OEM as to who owns the data and how do they monetize that data. But in general, the vehicle is being viewed as a platform for new revenue generation streams and from the OEM's perspective, even greater revenue than they're seeing today based on customer going to get their car serviced at the dealer, et cetera. Rob, what do you expect the impact of autonomous driving and ubiquitous connectivity to be on drivers' expectation of in-vehicle experiences? At some point, the sad thing is that I, and I, (laughs) this is a sad thing, but driving a car used to be one of your few sovereign places where you could be on your own and you didn't have to respond to email, you didn't have to read PowerPoint, but As soon as the car is driving you from point A to point B, in the same way that as you jump on a plane and you pay for Wi-Fi, et cetera, the expectation is you're online. And so you're going to be reviewing emails and presentations and Word documents, et cetera, et cetera. And so you've got more time to work. Or maybe on the upside, you've got more time to keep up on Breaking Bad or whatever your personal fantasy is relative to, uh, you know, watching Netflix. BMW announced rear seat entertainment platform that they're bringing a large screen down in the back seat, And everybody is trying to figure out what they're going to do with all the spare time. Politicians often say that electromobility will increasingly supplant the internal combustion engine, especially due to its environmental friendliness. Are there other reasons, Rob? For electric motors to become prevalent? Two key points. It's a lot easier for an OEM to develop a vehicle based on electric motors. And with all of the political initiatives towards a greener economy, this is another tailwind that's going to help drive the move towards electrification. And yeah, I would point to CEO of GM that recently announced at CES kind of her view of the world in terms of electrification. But I think in general, if an OEM does not have an EV strategy, they're probably going to be in trouble going forward. Rob, given all the various technologies that we've been discussing, will there be a classic car scene comparable to what we have known for the last 100 plus years? 
You know, I think it will still exist. I mean, at the end of the day, it's nostalgic. In fact, one of the things that was really cool is that I had a contest that you had to be a real aficionado in terms of paying attention to Micron's internal website. But we had a contest that said, okay, tell me about your first car and tell us the memories of your first car. And there is a unique connection between people and their cars. And, you know, what was really fun was that I think we had 60 people that said, here's my story about my first car. And people took the time and it was like, I, I think it was maybe 10 minutes on our website, maybe an hour. I don't know. I'm turning up the game a little bit on my stories. So I apologize if I brag or exaggerate. But we had like 60 people say, here's my story of my first car. And they posted an image of their first car after the fact. We had like another 10 or 20 people that responded and said, oh, gosh, darn it. How did I miss this? And here's my first car or here's the car that there's just this personal relationship that we have with the car. And that's not going to disappear. And so is it going to be the mainstream market for cars? Probably not. But is that niche going to exist? Yeah. Everybody's got a passion around their car. And Watch this space because I'm excited about some of the marketing that we're going to do. You know, now that you're mentioning it, I had to think of my first car, which yeah, was a okay, Volkswagen. Tell me about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. a VW okay. Golf 2. And I'm not even sure whether it was or to what numbers it was sold in the US, but I had a Volkswagen Golf 2 and I was really, really invested into that car. I yeah. did stuff. I modified that car beyond recognition. So you're right. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, maybe that is the way to go for classic cars. Maybe it'll be, as you say, personal relationships and emotions that actually tackle any and every challenge that might be there with this paradigm shift yeah. when it comes to classic yeah. cars. Absolutely. Rob, will personal transport remain affordable for the average person considering all the new technology that's going into these new cars? At the end of the day, I still believe people own a vehicle, but transportation as a service will become new mantra. Uh, but yeah, people will be able to afford their own car. They want their own car for the luxury of being able to have their own vehicle and control over that situation. It will be affordable, but there will definitely be dynamics that will be in place that will challenge when do I really need to take my own personal vehicle out versus just signing up for a service? And again, this is going to be a geographical thing. So you go to Idaho and people will drive their car all day long. You go to San Francisco and people say, I don't want to own a vehicle because I have no way to park it and just let the Uber automatically pull up to my driveway and I'm good. Robert, you mentioned emotions and personal relationships a couple of times during our conversation. I'd love to know when and how you developed your individual passion for technology. When I was seven years old, we had sharing in class, and this guy showed a Radio Shack kit that his brother had built. And it was just like, wow, holy smokes, this is, wow, you're able to do XYZ. So from seven years old, eight years old, I was bit. And in fact, I have to be honest, it took me decades to adjust to the fact that, okay, I guess I'm in marketing, but I can tell you that. I'll send you pictures if you're interested, but I live out in the country now and I've got a problem with woodpeckers and I just designed a circuit that anytime the woodpecker 
starts to peck at my property, it sends out a noise. So it's a vibration detection system, and it looks like it's working. So maybe we'll be pitching my product for woodpeck I elimination. No, it's it's uh, it's so stupid too. It's just no. Yeah. I think you have qualified as geek. Absolutely, that that's a passion for technology right there. Well, thank you, Robert, for all the insights that you've shared with us today. Dear listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with Robert, feel free to reach out to him via his Micron email. That is R-B-I-E-L-B-Y at micron.com. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast, Passion for Technology, on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other popular podcasting platforms. Robert, thanks again for joining. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. 